stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. 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 Happy October. It's October. Happy October, everyone. Libra season. It coming. Guys, it's here. Spooky season is officially here. We're very excited. I'm so happy. We just decorated our porch. We got the cobwebs. We got the ghost lights. It's it's ready. We're just ready to harass some children. It's very spooky. Mm-hmm. Beware. Yeah. Uh, welcome to another episode of The Long Road Home. I'm Chad. And I'm Emily. And we're so happy you're here again. So thanks for being with us. We hope you've had a really safe couple of weeks. We weren't able to record last week due to illness, but we're back and we're uh, we're ready to do this. We're back, baby. Let's yeah. go. Um, so hope you guys have some fall plans. We had some. They're gone now. Uh, yeah. We don't know what we're going to do for Halloween anymore. We're, we're really sad, you guys. I had, I, for the first time ever, knew what I wanted to be for Halloween since like the start of the year. And we had this whole plan. We were going to do it with our group of friends. We were going to go out. We were going to kill it on the town. But as you know, worldwide pandemic, it's not going to happen. Yeah. No more fun. Womp, womp, womp. Canceled. Uh, we're going to try and watch, uh, do the 31 days of spook, watch a movie every, every day during the month of October. And just kind of, yeah, try and get in the vibe as best we can. We'll still dress up, but we'll just be hanging out. Yeah. Hanging out at home in our costumes. Mm-hmm. So we do Be have, safe, everyone. <laughs> yes, please be safe. Um, we do got a lot of different stuff coming up for you this month. We're going to start the month with a murder mystery. And then later, we're going to get into some more supernatural things to kind of uh, lean into Halloween. That's right. And uh, I think we're going to have a Halloween special coming your way. Yep. That's the plan. It's going to be great. A little bit of HP Lovecraft, maybe? Maybe. Maybe some, some spooky, spooky stories. stories? We don't know yet. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's on the table. we got a lot of different ideas. But today, we are going to start a multi-part tale of murder mystery and intrigue in the western region of North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. That's right. Appalachian Mountains. Yes, it's a hard T. I don't care what you say. We should know because we both went to Appalachian State University. Yep. So when you think about it, uh, what we say is we're going to throw an Appalachia. Aww. Aww. No. Aww. Sorry, everyone. Rookie mistake. It happens. No problem <laughs> at all. So this week, we're covering the murder of Nancy Morgan in Madison County, North Carolina. Uh, this is the first part of at least a two-part series on this murder. We're going to be covering the life of Nancy, who she was, how she got to Madison County, and the subsequent days that led to her death. This story hits pretty close to home for me. Uh, I grew up in Madison County and didn't know about this murder until I was in my 20s when I just so happened to pick a book up that was in one of the, the local stores. I'd never heard about it, and there were so many people that I knew that were involved in it. It was just crazy. It's a really wild murder, and what happened after her death and the way that the murder was handled is absolutely outrageous. It's a really crazy story to hear. Now, before we go any further, I want to cite our source for all of this material. The information in our podcast comes from Met Her on the Mountain, a 40-year-old quest to solve the Appalachian cold case murder of Nancy Morgan by Mark I. Pinsky. So without further ado, we'll begin with the life of Nancy Morgan. 
Nancy Morgan was born to Colonel Earl and Abigail Morgan, a military family, on January 6, 1946, in Louisiana. She was the second of three children and the only girl. During her youth, the family moved numerous times, and she spent her teenage years in Germany while her father worked as the Director of International Law for the United States in Europe. But other than moving around, she was a regular teenage girl, experimenting with hairstyles and enjoying the new wave of rock and roll during the 50s. She was just bebopping around. She was uh, just like every other girl at the time. She liked the Beehive. She liked Elvis. She liked James Dean. She was just like everyone else. This is a rough story. It is. It is. And this is, yeah. So, yeah, knowing more about Nancy makes it worse. The family made its way back stateside when Colonel Morgan was transferred to D.C. in 1962. They managed to settle in Northern Virginia, where Nancy attended Mount Vernon High School, where she would end up graduating. A fellow student recalled a pretty, slim girl with auburn hair and clear, fair skin. Friendly, but modest. She liked to sit by the door and was serious, but quick to laugh. During her late teenage years, Nancy had begun to take interest in social issues. The assassination of JFK, the looming war in Vietnam, and the civil rights movement only furthered her interests, and after graduating in 1964, she attended Radford College. Now, in the book, Pinsky um, makes a point to say that she, she dated several men during her time in college. But I would just like to say that I think that Nancy was a more liberal-minded woman than anything. Yeah, she just liked to have fun. Just like anyone else yeah. in college. Get over it. One of her boyfriends did include a married man. Unfortunately, this relationship began to dissolve. Well, not unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so not a great choice. She was a young woman, um, but... A mistake was made. It's, it gets complicated when you get involved with somebody that's that's already married. And um, as things happened, uh, it, the relationship began to dissolve. And she ended up dropping out for a time and worked at a small Virginia ski hill. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Sounds oh, like my man. life, including the married man. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, Chad, do you have something to tell me? Not today. <laughs> okay. Um, she was able to recover and transferred to Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville while her father was stationed in Bellevue, Illinois. It is here that she graduated with a social work degree. Yeah, so she did go back and she finished her degree. She, uh, The thing she was interested in, she stayed interested in throughout this whole situation and the transferring of colleges and stuff. So she was able to finish. V impressive. No. Okay, <laughs> just go ahead. And, sorry. No, 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 that's good. Um, just say during her time there. No, no, I'm, I, I'm just going to comment on like what you had just said. Which is... Yeah, she was able to get back on track and, and stick with what her uh, initial plan was. Um, and really, she just wanted to make a change. She wanted to help. She really did. During her time at SIUE, romances continued to be a major part of Nancy's life. She dated the son of another Air Force officer, a senior at the Citadel in South Carolina, and eventually one of the university professors themselves. The professor wanted to marry Nancy, but for reasons unknown, their relationship too fell apart. Yeah, we're never really told what happened, and really there wasn't much about the professor. Uh, yeah, what would have happened if, she, if that had worked out? Yeah. If she had stayed in Illinois and, and done social work there. Not what happened to her, that's for sure. <sighs> yeah. After graduation, Nancy did what any college graduate does for some time. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You realize it wasn't all it's cracked up you to be. You spend your whole life, like, you're told you have to get into college. You have to work really hard to get into college. You go to college. Now you have to graduate college. Okay, you did it. 
Good luck. Now what? <laughs> Try not to die. I remember having a feeling of just like everyone had ex- had this expectation that you would know what to do. And I sure didn't. No, me either. <laughs> not at all. I also worked at a ski hill after college for right? a very long time. Same here. So I understand Along that Along with many people that I know. So mm-hmm. what do you do after that? We're still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, we are. So she contemplated nursing school while drifting through jobs in the D.C. area. But eventually, her interests would push her to join VISTA after graduation. This program would lead her to the small Appalachian community of Shelton Laurel, North Carolina. So the VISTAs are something that we're going to talk about in detail in just a little bit. But it's basically a program that goes into impoverished areas and helps the communities. It's like UNICEF, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It might have became UNICEF. I I thought that it became UNICEF or it would lead to or maybe just join UNICEF eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Correct us if we're wrong. UNICEF, tell us if we're wrong. Um, I do think it's important to note another potential influence in Nancy Morgan's life. Um, it's said that some think that the novel Christie, written by Catherine Marshall, influenced her decision to join Vista. Christie is a story of a young woman that moves to eastern Tennessee to teach children at a, Qua- at a Quaker mission school. She even brought a copy of the book with her to the mountains of North Carolina. I mean, yeah. What do you think, Chad? Um, it there are definitely some very striking similarities between her story and what happens in that story. Um, do you know much about it off the top of your head? I did. I did look into it. Um, I can't really remember. There are. It's. It is a, a tale of a young woman who who moves to, um, e- again, Eastern Tennessee to help the community there she she goes and volunteers um to help the children and and in turn embeds herself in the community and there's romance and there's drama mm-hmm. um and it's it's just it's just i think it's worthy of noting that she had read this book and and loved it so much that she brought it with her to a very similar area and actually i do know additionally that the town itself um referenced in the book is fictional but it is based off of the very real town of del rio tennessee you call it a town if you can call There's it a nothing town there. it's a community just like a lot of these small rural mountain places are and chad i mean isn't it pretty close <laughs> to hot springs let me tell you about east tennessee uh <laughs> careful West, western north carolina is la compared to east tennessee um and that's the truth i don't care I grew up there. I grew up 10 minutes. And the distinct difference between one side of the state line and the other was shocking constantly. Um, I'm sure there are good people, but I didn't encounter any of them. In Del Rio, you mean? <laughs> Not in Del Rio, no. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I, you know, it's it's a drive through area. There's like a post office, a bar. It's very rural. It's lots, lots of mobile homes, nooks and crannies, and now, people living in them. Let me ask you this. The year is what 1968, 1960. Yeah, I'm talking about 2012, Rio, Tennessee. I couldn't imagine how sparse. But I'm saying that I can't imagine, or I would, I would think that the state of Eastern Tennessee and Western North Carolina would be pretty similar. Yeah, quite possibly. During that time period, Um, it was definitely a little more rough and tumble where I was from during that time period. So. We'll get into that soon. We will. So, Chad, tell us a little bit more about Ma- Madison County okay. and Vista. So, like I said, I am from Madison County. It is an absolutely beautiful place. It's very, very rural. How many people live in the town of Hot Springs? In Hot Springs? Right now. When I So, when I was in high school, there were approximately like 700 people. We're designated as a village, I think, in terms of like size. As of 2018, 
There are 576 people living in the town of Hot Springs. So we lost 200, including me. Oh, no. Madison County is one of the largest counties in North Carolina and also one of the least populated. So there's a lot of space between the people there, and people like it that way. Uh, Madison County itself is broken up into several small communities with some space between them. It's like I said, uh, people live in the mountains in Appalachia. It's not like it is out west where there are giant Rocky Mountains in the distance and you live in the plains. There are lots of houses tucked away in places that you would not think there would be a house. So so it can be very remote in terms of just running into people and especially running into people that are a little different than you. And even today, suspicion of outsiders runs very deep in these communities. Uh, I, I heard that a lot growing up. When someone wasn't from there people were immediately wondering why they were there in the first place. So Hot Springs, where I'm from, is on the western tip of the county. The Appalachian Trail runs through there. So it, we naturally, we got more of a mix of people compared to a lot of the rest of the county. But needless to say, there is a, a very big suspicion of outsiders from locals, for the most part. I was nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I was nervous to meet your family. She's I, from North Carolina. And I'm from North Carolina, but I knew that I wasn't from that area. And so... I baked him an apple pie and won him over yeah. like any good daughter-in-law <laughs> would do. But still, you know, it's it's a tight community. It is. And we're looking at it from a present-day point of view. Back then, it was a lot different. Um, it's changed a whole lot since then. So decades ago, rural poverty was very real in a lot of these areas. And oftentimes, they're taken advantage of by the very people that they vote for, which is unfortunate. Um, there's a lot of higher-up lawmakers in North Carolina that look to them as constituents, but do not give them any funding. It's very frustrating to see it happen. Groups have entered the community offering help, but few really succeed. Missions via Protestant and a few Catholic missionaries constructed some small churches throughout Western North Carolina, but larger ideas such as schools, clinics, and railroads were very rare victories. Less religious missions came after these during the Great Depression. The New Deal created three new civilian conservation corps camps in Madison County that shipped in hundreds of young men to work there. Most worked in the Pisgah National Forest, planting trees, maintaining roads, building observation towers, and things like that. The federally funded Works Progress Administration projects took local men to labor on Madison County roads and public buildings. Social Security also brought in a wave of cash to the area. These projects, along with a local co-op created by the Farmers Federation of Western North Carolina, sold hooked rugs made by the mountain women there and helped bring about a small period of prosperity for the communities. Unfortunately, World War II brought a halt to the CCC camps and the WPA projects, and the co-op actually destroyed Madison County's homegrown rug industry, which was something that they were not expecting, I don't think. Super unfortunate. Um, a string of bad luck runs through these little areas as well, and it's really sad to see. So that's sort of the history of the area. That's very short history of the area. There's right. a lot more to it. But um, but the idea of aid coming from a place of pity and being looked down upon because of these things, it's a very large theme of the people in Appalachia. Many books and ideas of the area don't help the relationship building process from these organizations. Mm. A man named Hen a man named Harry Cottle in his book Night Comes to the Cumberlands, a biography of a depressed era, described described the Highlander as a challenge to all Americans everywhere. His sorrowful history has deposited him as a material and spiritual orphan on the nation's doorstep. He will not go away, and unless he is helped, his situation will not improve. In his mute suffering, he appeals to the mind and conscience of his country. Whoa. Yeah. It's, I mean, they didn't have a great opinion of, of the people. 
No, definitely And you not. can't go into an area anywhere like that, especially in somewhere as tight-knit as this, these communities are. So, Ooh, so it, there's, uh, there's some tension happening. Already. For sure. yeah. yeah, already. A woman by the name of Evelyn Underwood, who is a history professor at Mars Hill University, explains that this attitude leads local people to see outsiders as imported, who came with the idea of sort of looking down their nose at people, and that's definitely how they felt, including with the Vistas. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now I want to stop and tell you about the other side of Appalachia before we go any further. It would be an atrocity not to stop and also look at some of the positive sides of Appalachian culture. There's a rich culture of singing and music rooted deep in personal struggle and celebration. The stories and songs passed down orally in this region are beautiful and unique to the people. Shape note singing is one of my favorite things. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, if you don't know what it is, it's basically people that uh, couldn't read were wanting to sing hymns. And so what they did is, what is it called? The scale? It's a scale, right? Yes. Uh, you mean like do, re, mi? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what it is. So it's uh, instead of reading from a hymnal, what they would do is they would actually take shapes. And each shape represented a note in a scale. And so you get these do, re, mi, fa, and each one meant something different. And so what would happen is the shape note singers would sing the verse and then people that could read would sing the verse through text. It's beautiful, beautiful music. Um, if you've ever watched Cold Mountain, you'll hear some of it in their soundtrack. It's it's amazing. It's I really, really unique. like it. It is. Yeah, I hadn't heard anything like it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I before I came to Hot Springs, really. Um, and it's very much in the the front uh, soft palette. Yeah, a lot of singing is very nasally. Very nasal. Mm-hmm. Um, but beautiful. Yeah, angelic singing. Alongside singing, some of the finest and most celebrated musicians in the world have risen out of Appalachia, including Doc Watson, Dolly Parton, and Earl Scruggs. Western North Carolina also contains a lot of true American heritage in the region as well. Even today, there are, even today, there are festivals. Even today, there are festivals. That sell- <laughs> I'm sorry, you just forgot what the word festival yes, was. Yes, I did. Because it's been that long. <laughs> it's been. I, I don't, don't know if you it. want to cut that, but that's uh, pretty funny to know. You guys remember things. <laughs> Um, but yeah, even today, there are festivals that celebrate basket weaving, storytelling, pottery, quilt making, and other traditional activities that are still found and passed down through generations there. It's, it's great. It's really cool. It's one of my favorite festivals that I've been to was in Mars Hill when you get to go see people making molasses, they're making their quilts. It's awesome. It's so cool. Definitely. Um, in 1916, a man named Cecil Sharp explored Madison County and collected ballads that had crossed the Atlantic from the British Isles and evolved in isolation. He called Madison County the richest pocket of culture in America. So with all this in mind, please don't think that I'm knocking this area because I absolutely love it. It is beautiful, and I'm very glad that I was raised there. I met some really wonderful people during my time in Hot Springs and the whole county as a whole. And it's changed a whole lot, and it's becoming more welcoming, and there's some really, really good people living there now. We met some awesome people in the last year that we lived there, and my friends are still there, and I love them. So... Um, it's a beautiful, special place. Absolutely. And so, like, I encourage you to go there and meet some of these people and interact with them, but just be kind and... Um, don't be a dick. Yeah, just don't be a dick. Like, <laughs> don't, don't be go condescending. In. Not, again, okay, not to say Nancy Morgan was going in there trying to do anything wrong. No. She came in at a different time. But today, just, like, yeah. don't make assumptions about the people that you're interacting with. What happened to Nancy is very upsetting to me. Um, unfortunately, the good things about this county... It couldn't pull the area out of poverty. The 60s brought about little industry to the county. 
Subsistence farming, school teaching, government jobs, and moonshining were the primary means of garnering a livable income during this time period. So during the 60s, John F. Kennedy campaigned through Appalachia in West Virginia. He had seen the living conditions there, and it stuck with him deeply. He suggested a national service program to help provide urgently needed services in urban and rural poverty areas. Unfortunately, this idea did not gain traction until after his death, and Lyndon B. Johnson actually incorporated the concept into his 1964 War on Poverty legislation. He held a reception at the White House for the first 20 VISTA workers, telling them their mission would be to guide the young, to comfort the sick, to encourage the downtrodden, to teach the skills which may lead to a more satisfying and rewarding life. The pay was low, and their working conditions were often difficult. But Lyndon B. Johnson told them, You will have the satisfaction of leading a great national effort, and you will have the ultimate reward which comes to those who serve their fellow man. Sorry, that's just... Still reigns true for all nonprofit workers today. Yeah. You have the satisfaction of putting a smile on your fellow human's face. So here's minimum wage. It's really unfortunate. Social work is very important, and they've never been paid enough, including with this program that, that was created in the 60s. Now, this is where we're going to dive into the VISTA program a little bit so you have a better understanding of what exactly it was that took Nancy to Madison County. VISTA began fairly successfully. In the first two years following its founding, the number of VISTAs reached 3,600. These first VISTA workers were instrumental in building the foundation for programs such as Head Start and the Jobs Courts, as well as independent community projects. It was referred to as the Domestic Peace Corps, but as a VISTA, you only served for a year compared to the two-year Peace Corps term. They only earned $50 a month plus expenses and educational benefits. And the educational benefits were given only after completing their service. So it was not well-paying at all. He was not kidding around. I just looked it up. VISTA still exists today. It's AmeriCorps. It's AmeriCorps? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I knew it was something. I wasn't sure what. That's crazy. We so. figured it out. Okay. It's Yeah. Good. Um, AmeriCorps is awesome. We had a friend do it. She really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. They're doing great work. We're not to not to say at all that these people weren't there to help in Madison County. No, absolutely not. And we're going to see that they, they were there to help. Sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> it's totally fine. That too. No, And we're going to see that they were there to help. There were just some cultural differences. And at the time, it was a little bit too much, I think. Yeah. Um, we're also going to see some resistance to getting them into Madison County in the first place. So something... That I thought was interesting about the VISTA program is a lot of people that joined it believed themselves to be a little bit more activist and radical than the Peace Corps liberals. So they were, yeah, they were a little bit more involved in politics. They wanted change. It wasn't, they wanted, so they did want to help, but there was also a little bit more of an idea of like, we can maybe help these people open their eyes to different viewpoints. Gotcha. Mm hmm. Another interesting fact, Jay Rockefeller was a member of the Peace Corps, of the Rockefellers, one of the wealthiest families in America. He served in West Virginia and fell in love with the state, and that's how he ended up representing them in the United States Senate. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which I had no idea that he was even in the Senate. Yeah, what are you doing down there? Being rich. So it was Richard Hoffman, a political science professor at Mars Hill College, that spearheaded the idea of bringing VISTA to Madison County. Hoffman graduated from the University of North Carolina and arrived at Mars Hill in 1959. He attended graduate school at Chapel Hill shortly after, but once again returned to Madison County and bringing with him new ideas for change, both at the college and in the county. Hoffman had a good goal. He wanted to try and get insiders and outsiders working together to help improve the lives of the residents there. 
He saw LBJ's war on poverty as an opportunity to break down barriers between the university and the community. He was ambitious, but just like the Peace Corps, the Vistas had to be requested by local groups for, for specific projects in order to be allowed to come. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they needed specific information and permission to come. And this is what Hoffman really, really wanted. He thought it was going to be great for the county. And ultimately, it was. And we're going to see that as we read a little bit further. Just not so great for Nancy. Just not so great for Nancy. It's Yeah, <laughs> we'll get into that too. Many of the VISTA officials actually cast some very serious doubts about the Madison County Project. Jeffrey Hammer, the director of all the North Carolina programs, believed that colleges actually made poor project sponsors because few of their staff members were native to the area or part of the local establishment, and they tended to overestimate the value of applying theories to concrete community problems, just like a lot of academic people are, and that's a, that is a huge problem. Is like it, there's, uh, they struggle to bring their ideas into local communities. Right. Well, what do you really have a true awareness of what's happening in the day-to-day of the community if you're working at a college? You don't. 50 miles away. You just don't, and I that's something I found is I went back for my second degree and being involved a little bit more with the graduate programs and stuff like that was just seeing like there is a definitely a disconnect. And I heard that from president of the wildlife foundation, professors, people just don't know how to relay their information sometimes and uh, don't know how to work with the community in that way to even compensate. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeffrey Hammer was very involved in the process of getting visas into North Carolina and worked very closely with communities. He believed that too often volunteers were simply thrown into communities and left on their own to fail. So there was a lot of resistance initially getting this project going. But despite all this, the Madison County project was approved. And in 1969, 120 VISTA recruits gathered in Atlanta for 10 days of preliminary training for programs around the Southeast. In these 120 recruits was Nancy Morgan. The classroom training was called intense by many people involved. Peggy Breckenridge, a VISTA that was in Hot Springs at the same time as Nancy, recalled, They were absolutely pouring stuff in. The curriculum was essentially community organizing one-on-one. There were some guiding principles that they taught you during that time. Uh, They were, one, you live where you organized. Two, you surveyed your target area before choosing your project, and you worked on what people in the neighborhood, not yourself, thought was important. Lastly, you were to build a base before acting to make certain local people lead. They were also given additional instruction about what not to do and to be aware of attitudes about outsiders going into communities, demeanor, and dress. Don't drink with them. Don't sleep with them unless you marry them first. Don't try to change them and watch your language in mixed company. Okay. So they they did their best to try to prepare them for the situation they were going into. Well, you got to remember, these are young people in their early 20s and they might not think about that when they go into a place a new place right we know that nancy morgan had a social work degree but we don't know that of the rest of the exactly the we don't know what drew a lot of these people to this program again you said it was 10 days this training was over the course of 10 days yes okay so we could have maybe done a little more training yeah well like i said peggy uh peggy also said it felt like 10 weeks they were they were literally cramming wow. stuff into these people as fast as they could before they sent them out the, pro, the training could have been a little bit longer, I think. But we weren't there, so we don't know. Um, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, that's why we don't run organizations. <laughs> that's right. That's why we don't run organizations. Yeah, that, just that. <laughs> so a man named Richard Hames, who headed the Madison County contingent, selected seven former college students from these 120 recruits, including Nancy. 
Some of the people that he selected become very prominent figures later in the story. Ed Walker from Central Florida was the only Southerner among the people that he actually chose. One of his last choices was Myrtle Ray, an older local woman from the county. So he did try and go locally as best he could, I guess. After five more weeks of on-the-job orientation at Marshall College, the volunteers were dispatched into their communities. Their goal was to become known and trusted. That was the entire initial focus of what they were doing. Ed Walker actually dismissed a modest brick apartment and instead found a log cabin in the community of Bluff that he rented from a local family for $8 a month. Walker immediately fell in love with the area. He's quoted as saying the geography was just incredible, rugged, beautiful mountains. I don't think any of us wasn't awed. Bluff is a beautiful spot. It's gorgeous. Bluff is one of the prettiest places in the county. Um, to get to Bluff, you have to take uh, a road called Highway 209. It's called the Rattler. And it's just curve after curve after curve after curve for like 10 miles or something. And you're climbing the whole time. And eventually you end up on the side of the mountain. And you can just see for miles and miles into these big, deep valleys. And it's beautiful in the fall. Beautiful haze over the mountains in the summer. And Bluff itself is very, very pretty once you get to the top is sort of where that's at. That's why the area is called the Blue Ridge Mountains, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. of that haze in the evenings as the sun is setting, it kind of uh, makes the mountains have a blue hue. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really gorgeous. Pretty. It is. Uh, mm. Can I read this next part? Yeah, you definitely can. Awesome. So Nancy was selected and she moved to the area. And mm-hmm. when she did, she lived with a roommate named Diana Buzzard in the community of Shelton Laurel. Shelton Laurel is an extremely rural community. It runs through a very rugged area of the county with nooks and crannies filling the mountains. This area of the county, like the rest, held very close-knit groups of families. These people held a great pride in living there, even though at the, the time, many people in the community were extremely impoverished. Many did not have running water or indoor plumbing. Yeah, Shelton Laurel is one of the most rural areas in the county. Nancy wrote this in a letter to a friend. My roommate and I were first living in a two-room log cabin dating back to 1820. Outhouse, only cold running water, which froze over the third night we were there, so we had to haul in buckets of water. A coal oil stove for heat and two coal oil lamps for lights. So she said it was very rustic. Rustic, quote-unquote rustic. That sounds rough even. Very rustic, and I actually enjoyed the challenge. That's what she said. It was challenging. Absolutely. Um, so she, you know, yeah, it was it was rough living, but she was up she was up for it. I can barely stand not being in a house with good water pressure. Right? It's the worst. Absolutely. Let alone only cold water. Can't clean my body. Got to Gotta be get in all them nooks and grannies. Gotta get the coronavirus off of my body. <laughs> so after a little while of living there and approximately right after Christmas, Nancy's two brothers visited her in North Carolina. Her brother, George, described where she was staying like this. Quote, it was like where the Beverly Hillbillies came from, out in the sticks among old run-down houses. I don't know what an Illinois accent sounds like, but I would do it. The the bears. (laughs) It was like where the Beverly Hillbillies came from, out in the sticks among old run-down houses. Is that is that good? That's Minnesotan, I'd say. I don't think that they're that. I'm so bad at accents. You're great. You're doing great. I'm not a good impressionist. <laughs> I just don't think that 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 area has a very particular way of speech. But again, Nancy was feeling good about being there, and she had some initial success on her own. She decided to try and work with locals on getting proper nutrition into their diet. She told George many of the locals were simultaneously morbidly obese and malnourished. Yeah, not great. Not great. 
Mm-hmm. Their main meal might consist of corn or rice, potatoes, and bread. Carbs, carbs, and carbs. I mean, oh, living the life, but it's so not good for you. Nope, it's real bad. Need some meat, some apples, maybe. Yeah, just some greens. They might be harder to find than we think in 1970s Madison County. That's true. If you think about it, those were all really hearty crops that they were growing. And, Irish, and Irish crops. Yeah, give me some taters. Potatoes. Irish did settle that area. Aside from her main goal, she also had several other success stories. Diana and herself ran into two traveling musicians from the West Coast on Mars Hill campus and quickly were able to organize an evening concert at the grocery store in their community. And that band was Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> no, it was not. No. But come on, she was so gung-ho. What, like, what a sweetheart. She just, she really wanted to make a difference. She got there and she hit the ground running. She was helping with nutrition. She organized a concert. Yeah, she had some really great initial success, especially with uh, the younger people in the community. In fact, many of the volunteers had early success. Frank Breckenridge was able to coordinate a group of young people that successfully reopened a small movie theater in the town of Hot Springs. Peggy Breckenridge organized a women's health support group in town and also led a project that concentrated on trying to get a retired doctor from Asheville to hold office hours in Hot Springs. So really, they, they were moving and shaking. Yeah, everyone was, was everyone had set out with a goal and they were doing pretty well there for a while. The Breckenridges were in Hot Springs. That's where they operated out of. So Ed was in Spring Creek. Peggy and Frank were in Hot Springs. Ed was in... The community of Spring Creek and Nancy and her roommate were in Shelton Laurel. Okay, so I the way that I had thought it was that she was just living in Shelton Laurel and working in Hot Springs, but I, I guess no, I was she wrong. Okay. yeah she was in Shelton Laurel helping that specific area. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Then thinking about two young women taking on that territory. Yes, uh, in that yeah. at that time. Yeah, just in the woods, okay. deep in the holler. So things went well for a time. But Diana very quickly became uncomfortable with the high energy of her roommate. Been there, girl. Oh, excuse me. Not as Diana, but as Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to tone it down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, but unfortunately, well, not unfortunately. She was her own person. But unfortunately for the situation, Diana was a shy, highly religious girl. And her personality clashed heavily with that of Nancy's. If you remember earlier when talking about Nancy's college years, keep in mind she is a a more liberally, a liberal-minded woman. So think about a conservative, uh, shy, highly religious young woman and a more flamboyant Witch. Outgoing. She's a witch compared to Diana. Outgoing. Diana thinks she's that's, a witch. They, they just are going to, they're going to butt heads. So Diana considered Nancy a spoiled brat that drank too much, while Nancy often poked fun at Diana for waiting until marriage to have sex. Mm-hmm. They didn't get along right. at all. The differences came to a head one night when two drunken men knocked on their cabin door. Diana didn't want Nancy to open the door, but Nancy thought that she could handle the situation. And she did. Nancy spoke to the two men and successfully talked them into leaving. But the experience frightened Diana badly, and although the two attended a staff meeting to talk about the incident and try to hash out their differences, Diana Buzzard quit Vista and headed back to Pennsylvania. She is quoted as saying, I knew if I didn't leave, something bad would happen to me. Very ominous. Very, very ominous. 
The way Nancy approached these two drunken men at their cabin is consistent with the way she approached a lot of people in the county, and a lot of the locals did tell her that that was dangerous. Um, A lot of people thought that women shouldn't be out at night. They need to be careful around men that they don't know and things like that. Unfortunately, I think this time that proved to be true, but Nancy didn't really listen to them very well. She was very willing to go out and just talk with whoever showed up. I mean, it was the late 60s. She was a well-educated woman. Yeah. She... She was a social worker, and she had been trained to handle situations. And I'm sure that in her life, she had handled tough situations before. But she was in an area that was a little um, behind the different. times. Behind the time, I didn't <laughs> I mean, want to say it, but they were behind it is, the times. It was. And 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 she she really thought she said I you know I she thought like I have a good heart and I I know how to handle these situations. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't matter because she was a young woman. It, it didn't matter. No, it eventually cost her her life, which is very sad. So this is one of the biggest events prior to the murder that happened to Nancy. There were also some other events that occurred with other volunteers after being there for some time. The Visses themselves began to have differing opinions on what they should be doing, and many of their monthly meetings became heated, almost becoming what Pinksy calls an Pinsky. Inca- Pinsky. Jesus. Okay. Almost becoming what Pinksy calls an encounter. Pinsky. God damn it. This is like that commercial. Pinsky. 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 Neener. Just say it. Say it three times. Pinsky. 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 Almost becoming what Pinsky calls an encounter group. Frank and Peggy Breckenridge were pragmatic in their activities. They stuck to what they had set out to do with healthcare and the movie theater. They were very neutral in all other aspects of the community. Their neutrality went so far as to sit out intervening with the local tomato packing plant after some of the local people in the survey that they gave out in their community were complaining about it. So they chose two things and they stuck to it. Wow. That's the only things that they did. You are going to have more impact if you are focused. You are. And some people didn't see them as doing what they needed to be doing because of that. People such as Ed Walker. Ed Walker had big plans. His career was rooted in his class and cultural background. He was considered radical in his community organizing. He saw Vista as a chance to confront corrupt local politicians and merchants. Ed was a salt-of-the-earth character. He saw the Breckenridges as indulgent because of their portable TV and Frank's rock collection. <laughs> he hated it. He hated Frank's rock collection. Get out of here with those rocks. Like, we got better things to do. Yeah, I don't I, I mean, don't know what that was on, about. Come on, leave it be. It's a strange thing. But, I mean, this is the same guy that turned down a nice, like, a brick house for a cabin. Right. He wanted, he was like, he dove in, he wanted to be there, he wanted to make a change, like a big change. He boots on the ground. Very much so, and he was aggressive about it. Nancy was somewhere in between these two. Oftentimes, she was what you might call the peacekeeper between them during those heated moments within the VISTA meetings. The problems weren't just within VISTAs, however. While there were groups in the community who saw VISTA as a solution to some of their problems, others saw them as outsiders in different clothes and accents than theirs. Many saw them as the projects that came before them, as people who saw the locals as people who couldn't fend for themselves. So, to me, this is still a problem today, and I don't understand why so many people refuse help. Uh, that's something that I learned growing up. It's like, you, you just don't take help. It doesn't matter. Like, you have to do it yourself. And it's a very silly idea, and it's almost a pride thing. It is a pride it's thing. It's prideful it is. to me. And it's something that I don't fully understand. And it's very hard to watch people not accept others just because of the way they view their help. Right. Yeah, it's very hard to watch. 
The program itself seemed to clash with the locals. Ed Walker recalled the glamorous parts of Vista, thinking that when they joined, they would work to launch a cooperative enterprise on an Indian reservation or work on civil rights issues in an African-American community. Instead, he says, here we were in this little Appalachian community with no real focus or organization, just like they were concerned about. Mm. Community organizing was often a vague phrase to Vistas, and putting it into practice was proving very difficult in a place where the community wasn't fully ready to accept help. Some of the actions made by the Vistas did not help their case. In particular, one of the gatherings that they had became a party full of loud music and language that locals most likely considered on the cusp of sacrilege. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <gasps> they threw a party, Chad. They threw a party, and but they, they were breaking rules. This um, is true. They, ta- they warned them of this, and they, they were right. Uh, at one point, a neighbor who lived about a quarter mile away walked up to the house to tell them to be quiet, which was returned with a go fuck yourself. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's not okay. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't great. It was really a bad move on everyone's part at that point. Again, like think about it anywhere else. Yeah. That could have been a very low-key event. Yeah, but to but them it was a not gigantic there. ordeal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With all the issues, nuance, and different opinions about the Vistas, the community, and the people who had roles in the story after the death of Nancy, it's not surprising that the circumstances surrounding her death are still unclear, maybe even more so today because of bumbling state and local police. Regardless, we're now going to dive into the timeline of the days leading up to the murder that we are aware of and a few of the details we know a lot less about. On Friday, June 12, 1970, nearly a year into her stay in Madison County, and with the move to nursing school imminent, Nancy threw on jeans and a white button-down shirt. She left her cabin in a government car that was given to her during her time in Madison County, a 1965 Plymouth Belvedere. She turned the car past a small store, Cutshaw's Grocery, and onto Highway 208, a road that winds through the nooks and crannies of the Shelton Laurel community and down into the rest of the county. Her first stop of the day was Marshall, the county seat. She got her hair done and then stopped at her favorite store in town, Penland and Sons. That's still there. Is it really? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that where we got this book? Yes, I think so. Oh. Yeah. My gosh. It's the same store. Yeah, I've been there. That's, wow. It's here she picked up a pair of old-fashioned overalls for her upcoming vacation. She returned to Shelton Laurel later that day, making her typical stop at Cutshaw's Grocery to visit the owners. Glendora and Clarence Cutshaw were not only her landlords, but also became surrogate parents. These two were supportive of the Vistas and had given them occasional rides to Asheville and even took them as a group to a local theme park. Ghost Town, that's what it's called. Oh, really? I was yeah. wondering, where, was, w- Ghost where was Ghost Town? It was in Maggie Valley, I think. I, oh, okay. I went there when I was very small. I don't even think it's around anymore. I, wait, hold on. Let me let me Let's check. See. I want to know. It is. It's still there. Ghost, is it Ghost Town in the sky? They were gone for a while, and I think they came back. Is it's what temporarily happened. closed right yes. now. But yeah. um, yeah. Okay. It's well, there. Yeah, it's a very small theme park. So essentially, Glendora and Clarence Cutshaw um, were members of the community. They were supportive of the Vistas so much so that they went to Ghost Town together, um, and they housed Diana and Nancy. So she stopped there on her way home. And during her visit, she ran into one of her local friends, Ruth Hensley. And after finding out that she was moving to South Carolina to prepare for a move to Germany, Nancy insisted that Ruth and her family stay with her Saturday night. Yeah, she was going to take her to the airport the next day. The next day, Nancy had several more run-ins with locals who knew her, and also a chance encounter with Ed Walker. While at the pool on campus of Marcel University, she ran into Ed, who had brought some children from the Spring Creek community to the pool. 
There, Ed offered to buy a watermelon and invite some of the kids over to his house. He also invited Nancy over for the evening on Sunday. The two wanted to discuss their VISTA projects before Nancy left for nursing school. She agreed and left with her group back to Shelton Laurel to meet with Ruth, who was staying with her that night. Sunday morning came, and after dropping off Ruth, she returned home to prepare for her evening with Ed. She ironed a pair of maroon cutoff shorts and a ribbed blue top before leaving the store around 1.30. She reached the home of Ed Walker several hours later, and the two wandered around the property. Ed recalls, quote, I showed her the garden. Dempsey Woody's garden was right next to my house, and we picked some onions, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was important. We know what Ed remembered. Yes. No, definitely. Later that night, Nancy cooked them both an omelet for dinner. And afterwards, two friends of Ed's came by, and they all watched the movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. They left shortly after, leaving Nancy and Ed to chat on the porch. They spoke to one another about their time in the county and their struggles and successes and what the experience had meant to them. Nancy told Ed that after Vista, she expected to travel and visit friends before starting nursing school. Her cap and gown had already arrived in the mail, and she was showing them off to her friends. She had promised that she would return to Madison County armed with skills that could benefit the area. That's very sad. It is very sad. Um, She wanted to come back. She wanted to come back and help. She she saw an opportunity and she wanted to. She was going to go back to nursing school mm-hmm. and come back yeah. and, and help them further. Their talk continued through 3.30 in the morning and then Nancy left Ed Walker's house. He turned her car around for her on his narrow road and watched as she drove away. He says, quote, I remember standing there and watching the headlights go until she got out to the hard road. Afterwards, he turned away, went back to his house and went to bed. Little did Ed know that would be the last time anyone saw Nancy Morgan alive again. Three days later, a man named Jimmy Lewis would find Nancy's body on his drive home from Hot Springs, hogtied with her maroon shorts lying across her face. And that's where we will pick up with part two of the murder of Nancy Morgan. Next time, we're going to dive into what happened to Nancy, the sloppy investigation that followed, and the events leading up to the arrest of a potential killer. And that's part one. So Nancy was a really wonderful person that really, truly only wanted to help. And what happened to her is really, she didn't deserve it. No. Um, and we're going to go into that in more detail in the next episode. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening to part one of The Murder of Nancy Morgan. Thank you, guys. Um, this is our first true crime episode. It is. Um, we are both huge fans of the true crime um, genre, genre, if you will. Um, but it's a different experience putting a story together like this. Yeah, doing research on a topic like this really opened my eyes to the kind of person that Nancy was and my own community in this case. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, it should be an interesting journey for part two. It is. Uh, so, yeah, once again, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we do have a request. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please go and rate us and leave us a review. Those reviews are so important to us right now. And if we can get enough of them, the algorithm likes us. And hopefully we will be on the new podcast page of Apple Podcasts very shortly. So we need your help, though. We need those ratings and reviews. It doesn't have to be long. Say, we, you love it, you hate it. Ghost, alien, dead. I don't care. Say Y'all one just word. just hit that button. Just hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. It's not going to take a lot of time for you, but it's going to mean a lot to us. It absolutely is. So, yeah, if you're listening on Apple, ratings are s- supremely appreciated. Give it a tap, a tap. Yeah. Um, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore LRH underscore pod. And also on facebook at the lrh pod 
Now, we've mentioned in previous episodes that we're going to be doing a a Twitch stream every two weeks, but unfortunately, we've decided that's a little bit too much for us to take on right now. That was when we were going to be bi-monthly, and now that we're weekly, we just don't have time, which is very unfortunate. But that being said, that being said, we do have another way for you to connect with us. Yeah, we officially have some tiers on Patreon for you to check out. There's going to be some different ways that you can interact with us and also some sweet, sweet merch through those subscriptions. So be certain to check those out. All right, everyone, we're rolling into spooky season. We're really excited and we hope that you are, too. We're going to have some great content coming your way. It's going to be all about that spook. Yeah, we're very, very excited about the next couple episodes. And we hope you are too. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. We love our audience. We've loved the reviews that we've received. It's so cool to see the downloads that we have. And we hope you'll join us here again next time on The Long Road Home. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. See ya. Well, you'll hear us soon. Later. Soon. Bye. Thank you.